Thanks, Amy. Good morning, Arcadia. How are you? Great to see you. Uh, once again, Rick Umble leading us this morning in worship. Uh, Cody is over at Alhambra Village. Uh, they needed uh, some help this morning, and so uh, Cody went over there. We have Rick, and so we're good with that, and uh, we appreciate him being able to step up and do that uh, for us. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new, and um, we are in Romans chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Romans for the last year and a half. And so before we get into that, though, I want to uh, talk about a couple of things um, and just kind of maybe that might help you out a little bit. Um, Sean mentioned that we're doing baptisms on August 24th, and then he said, be sure to contact the office in regard to that. Uh, the reason we like you to contact the office about baptisms is because one of the elders would like to meet with you, and, and usually that's me or um, uh, Sean Mortensen also does that quite often, but uh, here's the reason we like to meet with you. It's not to interrogate you about your baptism. Um, it, it, that's not it at all. We just want to hear your story and then communicate to you how, that's gonna, how it's going to work uh, on Sunday logistically. So there's nothing to it really other than we just delight in hearing your story. So please uh, contact us and you'll get set up with a meeting with either myself or probably uh, Sean Mortensen. Um, we would love to be able to do that. Along those same lines about loving to hear people's stories, I love to hear people's stories as well and so we're far enough now into this Romans thing we've been doing this for a year and a half and we'll be done by um, Advent this year but we're far enough into this Romans thing now that I can ask you if you're somebody who's predisposed to doing something like this if you would be willing to do this uh, what I'd like you to do is um, uh, talk about uh, in writing uh, maybe something that, that has hit you in a different way or a new way about the book of Romans since we've been going through it for so long. Maybe there's a verse that you never really understood before and now it's, uh, the Spirit has made it clearer to you. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it would just be to say, here are my three favorite verses in Romans and, and here's why. Um, whatever it is, uh, for me it would be something like, I never thought about Romans 8.3 the way I have since doing this series. Romans 8.3 says, for God has done what the law was not able to do for us. And that's a really important deal. Uh, I would like to hear about that. <clears throat> I've done this in the past as I've gone through other books and it's just been a, a, a way that, that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ can share how the Spirit is working in their lives and sharing God's Word. And so if you're somebody who is interested in doing that, we'd love to hear from you. In fact, it's more specifically, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly. Uh, my email is on the website or it should be in the bulletin or you can send it to Stephanie and she'll forward it to me. I would love to hear about that. Um, it, it would just be a great way to open some dialogue. Let me tell you this though. I'm not looking for a PhD dissertation or a treatise of 100 pages. If you could keep it like, you know, three, four paragraphs, that would be great, but I'd love to read those things. Uh, it would be a great blessing. I'm also, frankly, looking for sermon material the rest of the way, so maybe I could use them for that if that's possible. So having said that, we would love to hear from you if you're somebody that's interested in doing that. Uh, we are in a new section of the book of Romans now. Cody introduced us to it last week. Romans 12 and beyond is a very important breaking point in the book. Everything in, in Romans 1 through 11 is doctrine and theology and about God's sovereignty and grace and mercy. And then everything from 12.1 on is Paul telling the, the, the Christian community, the body of Christ, or the individual Christian himself or herself, how to live 
life through a gospel-centered lens, how to live your life as a follower of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. And and Cody started us last week with with Paul's sort of thesis statement for the rest of the book. And, And that is that because of God's mercy, because of his grace, because of his sacrifice for you, because he loves you so much, because of this great gift that he's given to you, Our lives should be a living sacrifice to him. All of our life should be all worship for Jesus. And because of what's happened, our thinking is going to be renewed. Our minds are going to be renewed. So we're going to feel differently about things and we are going to understand things differently. We're going to have a new lens with which to look at life. And so our life is going to be sacrificially lived and with a renewed mind, renewed thinking. And then the rest of the book, but especially chapters 12 and 13, which we're going to take several weeks to go through now, is all about the Mark's characteristics and features of the Christian community, the body of Christ, the local body, as well as the extended body, as a result of this sacrificial living and renewed thinking. As a result of that, as God is working in our lives. These next several weeks especially really do define who we are. And I want to make this distinction. This is really important. Paul is not talking in chapters 12 and 13 about who we're supposed to be. He is talking about who we are as a result of Christ being in our lives. We are to now live into our identity as Christ's followers. So these chapters are all about who we are, not who we should be, but who we are in Christ and in community. And really, love becomes a key. Next week, uh, he starts chap- uh, verse 9. We're just going to look at verse 9 next week in chapter 12. And the first statement in verse 9 is that love needs to be genuine. And then that becomes sort of uh, the conduit through which everything else is going to flow out of chapter 12. So love becomes a key. But today, before we get there, it's verses 3 through 8. These six verses are the Christian life born in love and exercised in the giftedness that God has graced each of us with. It's, it's, the, it's the Christian life born in love and exercised in the giftedness that God has graced each of us with. And here's the big idea of these six verses. Clear thinking leads to serving others in your giftedness. Clear thinking, a renewed mind, leads to serving others in our giftedness. And, and this passage breaks down beautifully into three sections. Verse three is clear thinking about yourself. Verses four and five is clear thinking about the church and who, who it is that benefits mostly from the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And then verses six through eight are clear thinking about how to use your gifts, how to exercise your gifts. And so we're going to look at verse 3 first and just kind of work our way through that outline. But I want to read verse 2 as well because there's a very important connection between verses 2 and 3 that we don't see because of these verse uh, divisions, okay? So Paul writes in verse 2, which Cody taught on last week, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. All of our minds have been transformed by Christ. We now have the mind of Christ, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. So, by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that is, what is good and acceptable and perfect, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment 
each according to the measure of faith God has assigned or that God has given to us. So I want you to see the connection there between verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 insists that our mind is going to be renewed by Jesus and verse 3 insists that we begin, because of that, we begin to think correctly and with sober judgment about ourselves. And so verse 3 actually gets split into three clauses, three sections. And that first part is Paul's negative exhortation in the midst of all of this. Very often, Paul says something negative before he says something positive. He says something like, don't do this, but rather do this. It's not just, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I've come to ruin your party, don't do this. It's not that. It's, don't do this, but instead do this. So this is the negative part of his exhortation. He says, don't think too highly of yourself. And in the Greek, it literally means, don't have super thought about yourself. Don't super think about yourself. Don't, don't go so far as to think of yourself uh, in, in a hyper way that gets you all excited about yourself, okay? Here's what Paul is saying. Boasting in yourself is a problem, and we're not supposed to do that. Yet it's something that all of us battle with. Every one of us boasts at one time or another. Every one of us struggles with pride and arrogance and thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And sometimes it gets manifested in big ways, other times it's little, but it's one of the first things that you and I, in our human nature, will go to. Uh, Walt Whitman says it like this. I love this quote. He says, I find no sweeter fat than that which sticks to my own bones. I find no sweeter fat than that I like to gnaw on myself. I like to just chew on myself. That's what he's saying. James Montgomery Boyce, who is not quite the poet that Whitman is, he says it this way. Virtually all of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and further, we expect everyone else to have that same exalted view of us as well. That's the problem. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather, the second clause in that verse is think of yourself with sober judgment. This is the positive side of Paul's exhortation. It's not that we aren't supposed to think about ourselves at all. That's not it. It's, but rather, Paul is saying, when you do think about yourselves, think clearly. Instead of super thought, it's sober thought. And that word sober in the Greek literally means with clarity and sanity. And what's interesting about that word is there's another word in the Greek that we have in the New Testament <clears throat> that is translated drunkenness or intoxicated. It, the word is pretty much interchangeable. This word sober is the opposite of that. This word sober is the opposite of intoxicated. When we do not think of ourselves with sobriety, we are out of touch with reality. It's a form of insanity when we get all wrapped up in ourselves and how great we are. Have you ever noticed how cocky and braggadocious a drunk person can get? You ever notice that? They get, they get out of touch with reality. They're a little bit out of line. I, I feel like I can beat up anybody when I'm, you know, even Jackie. I mean, okay, I'm ready now, Jackie. You know, that's a problem. But, oh, but okay, let me clarify. I have not been getting drunk around Jackie. Just around the rest of you. So, um, no, I, 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 no, but you understand the point. Don't lose the illustration here. I digress, okay? So, or, or here's another one. Have you ever noticed how an intoxicated person, and that word intoxicated, that word even translated drunkenness, understand you can be intoxicated by anything. And when Paul uses the word intoxicated, he's not just talking about wine or, or strong drink. He's also talking about being intoxicated by lust 
or by pride or by your own self-importance or, or by wealth. You're intoxi- whatever it is that you're intoxicated by, you begin to lose touch with reality. So the intoxicated person has a terrible grasp of reality. Sober judgment means to see things as they really are through the lens of Christ. Philippians 2, 5. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Look at the world through the lens of Jesus. Look at the world through the lens of the gospel. Um, here's an illustration. So uh, about it, it was either five or six years ago. I, I run the P.F. Chang's Marathon almost every year. If not, I run the Phoenix Marathon instead. But Five or six years ago, I ran the, the P.F. Chang's Marathon and I, for the first time in my life, this had been a goal of mine, for the first time in my life, I ran the marathon in less than three hours and 20 minutes. Now, if you don't understand marathon running, uh, let me help you a little bit. Three hours and 20 minutes really isn't that fast. The guy who won the race was still a little bit more than an hour ahead of me. But for me, that was really exciting. Three hours and 20 minutes, a goal I had worked towards and ran and all this stuff. And, and, and during the last half mile of that race, after 26 miles, I remember I kind of felt like I got a little bit of energy and a little bit of second wind and I kind of started to pass some people uh, during that last half mile. And, and I really felt like I was, just, I was just really running fast during that last half mile. Uh, I, was, I was blowing by people. I had this wonderful form that they were going to put on the cover of ESPN magazine. Uh, as I was passing people, they were disintegrating into dust because of the, you know, the physics of, of me going so fast. It was just, uh, my hair was you know, flowing in the, and all this stuff. This was the only year that I know of in which also... P.F. Chang's had a camera at the finish line of, of the marathon, okay? And it was at an angle, and so you could, you could see about for about 25 or 30 seconds uh, you actually coming in and, and crossing the finish line. And so what they did was, was they set this thing. It was really cool. They set this thing up on, the, on, the, on their website where you go to their website, you put in your bib number or your last name, and it will take the camera right to that 30 seconds when you should have come in, okay? I couldn't wait to see this because I'm sure that I just looked great you know and so I went there and I punched in my bib number and I'm looking and it's not like there's thousands of people going by we're just kind of slowly trickling in and I'm looking and I'm watching and I watched the whole 30 seconds and it, and it ended and I, I didn't see myself where was I and I checked the time because they had the time up there for when people were I said, that's when I finished where was I so I hit replay and now I'm looking really close okay I did not see this fast, amazing, young, fresh guy finishing a race. What I finally saw was reality. I was an old, middle-aged, white guy who was desperate to get to the finish line, and I looked horrible. <laughs> you see how we can get intoxicated with ourselves, though? I mean, oh, that's just a delirious runner's high. No, it's because I'm filled with pride. That's why. It's, it's because every time I do something well, obviously it's because I'm just awesome. You guys suffer from the same thing as well. So sober thinking, embrace sobriety. And here's the best thing about sober thinking, I will tell you. The best thing of that is that if you have sober judgment through the lens of the gospel, there's three things that you should always remember. Number one, you were created in God's image. Number two, you are filled with the Spirit of God. And number three, you are a part, an important part of his plan, his mission, and his purpose. So when we think soberly, 
We do still get to have the benefits of that, but only it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. We are made in his image. We are filled with his spirit and we are part of his plan. And that is a good thing. And then Paul says at the end of verse three, do this in accordance to the faith, in, in, in good measure of the faith given to you. In other words, by the power and wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit are we supposed to think of ourselves. None of us have the ability to think clearly and sanely about ourselves without the Holy Spirit's guidance and help and wisdom. And that word measure that Paul uses there literally means standard, and the standard is Jesus Christ. That's who the standard is. And so again, we can't get too hyper about ourselves. We love what's known as the social comparison process as human beings. We love to compare ourselves to other people because one way or another, we can find somebody who's worse than us and we can feel better about ourselves. Paul comes along and says, no, the standard, of me- the standard of who you're supposed to compare yourself, the measure is Jesus Christ. Compare yourself to Jesus and that will sober you right up. That's where our sobriety comes from. Uh, Kent Hughes writes this. If we really do make Jesus our standard measure, as Romans 12.3 says, it will then be impossible to think too highly of ourselves. Remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have a realistic, humble, and accurate view of their spiritual condition. And you can only do that with sober judgment, using the measure of Christ. So that's, that's thinking clearly about ourselves. And then Paul, for the next two verses, talks about thinking clearly about the church, the body of Christ, and who it is that is going to receive these gifts of ours once we get there. He writes, For as... <clears throat> For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And so when you look at verses 4 and 5, what Paul is telling us is that when it comes to the body and its members, we need to embrace three things, three things that are critically important. First of all, we have to embrace that we are unified. We have to embrace unity. We are one body standing in one community. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter one. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that Greek word translated side by side is literally interlocked. We strive interlocked with each other for the faith of the gospel. So the first thing we have to embrace is unity and then the second thing we have to embrace which sounds a little contradictory, but it's true, is diversity. We're unified, but we're also very diverse. Though we are all very different in the Christian community, we are all equally essential. What we have to remember is that we cannot assign various values to certain Christian giftedness. They're all needed. They're all essential. They're all necessary to make us all part of a body. And then as a result of that, we embrace the third thing, which is mutuality. We work together for the equipping, the serving, and the benefit of everybody. Paul literally says each member belongs to the other. Now this is really, this is really, really important. And the reason it is is because Paul is teaching this and it would be quite challenging in a culture like ours where the individual reigns supreme. That's the challenge that we have. Here, we are told, we are reminded that the Christian faith is essentially at its core a corporate experience. It's a corporate experience. 
And, and what's very interesting about this as we looked into it, we found that the, the, in, in the New Testament, there's both the word body and the word church used to describe the bride of Christ, the church, the local church. What's interesting is that the word body is used far more often when describing biblically descriptive work of the bride of Christ than the word church. In other words, how the church functions when the Bible talks about that, it uses the word body more often than it does church. But you and I, we like the word church. And here's why. It's a lot easier to treat a church as a consumer product than it is a body. It's a lot easier to slide in and out of a church and to shop for a church than it is to slide in and out of a body or slide in and out of a, or, or, or shop for a body. It's a lot easier to practice what one author calls hyper-personalized religion when we attend a church rather than when we are a part of a body, a fully functioning, healthy body. Uh, Jim Harper writes this, what kind of cell in a body is it that only takes and never gives. What kind of cell is it in a body that only takes and never gives? Cancer. It's a cancer. We are a body and therefore none of us are expendable and the rest of the body is not expendable to you. The bride of Christ is organic. It's not synthetic. Uh, Cody said something last week that I just, I could not get out of my mind all week long. He says that we as human beings, we have exchanged beauty for plastic. We need to remember that the body of Christ is organic and not synthetic. Chuck Colson says it this way. The body of God's people has little to do with slick marketing or fancy facilities and everything to do with the Spirit of God in their midst. You cannot live without the body. Now you can visit 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a lot more on this body metaphor. But from verses 4 and 5 here, we see that the church is going to be one. The church will serve in many different ways and that the church thrives on its gifting and on its interconnected community. And let me just say something about this. This is really important. For, for years now, maybe even hundreds of years, there's been a problem, I believe, with this artificial divide between clergy and laity. This artificial hierarchy that we have somehow put together in the church that we often default to where we wrongly think that those who are in vocational ministry, the, the paid professional religious people like myself and Sean Myers and Josh Prather, are, we're certainly more important and more gifted than those who, quote, just work in the marketplace. That, that is just flat wrong. You know, those, are, those on the staff are the professional class and the rest are just the amateur class. Those on the staff are the active class and those in the seats are the passive class. That, that is an inaccurate understanding of the body and especially of the body of Christ. We all have different roles and all are, accent, are essential. Not needed. Essential. There's a difference. Uh, Redemption Church has this amazing very comprehensive, somewhat lengthy, but very helpful packet on membership. And you can access it on our website. We can print it for you. It's really helpful. And there's uh, not only are there all the details about uh, what membership is and how to become a member, but there are a couple of really helpful essays in this packet as well, including one on the importance of church membership. Let me read a paragraph from that essay for you that, that just fits right here. The call to be on mission is not limited to pastors, church staff, and group leaders. 
All believers have a part to play. In fact, Scripture tells us that leaders within the church are called to equip the saints. In other words, all believers. If you're a believer, you are a saint. We are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That would be Ephesians chapter 4. Essentially, we function as one body made up of many members with Jesus Christ as our head. Working together, we grow into maturity. When all believers embrace the importance of their role in the church community, the body of Christ is able to function with all of the faculties it is supplied with. And when each part is working properly, the body grows in health and strength. It's a little 35-second video I want you to see that might help illustrate this. Many of you have probably seen this already. Five persons playing one guitar. Thanks. Pretty cool, right? Now, I, I, I looked at the little numbers on YouTube. and so, How many of you have already seen that, that video? Yeah, quite a, quite a few. As usual, I'm like five years late. But anyway, it doesn't make the illustration worse, okay? You, you, get, you get what we're getting at here. There's five people playing one guitar, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's unified, it's diversified, and there's mutuality there. But here's the other thing I want you to see. If just one of those persons, understand that if one of those persons decides any one of these things, that they're better than all the others, that, that they're more important than the others, that they don't need the others, or that the others don't need them, or that they can do better on their own, everyone will lose. But the person who loses most is actually that one person who makes that decision. This is how important unity is. And then just a word on diversity and then we'll move into the third section of this message. It's an interesting metaphor. Here's, here's some other metaphors for it. Let me speak to the guys for just a second. Guys, look up here. I want, you, I want your attention now. Okay, let's say you're married or you have a girlfriend or you're interested in that arrangement, okay? All right, so let me ask you this question. How would you like it if your wife or your girlfriend were, were just an eye? Or maybe just a toe? She's really good at kicking field goals, but she can't do anything else. A toe. I mean, that's it. Okay? Maybe an, a combination eye-toe. She can watch as she kicks. Okay? You wouldn't want that, right? Now, ladies, women, same thing, right? What if your husband, your boyfriend, the guy you were interested in, was just an elbow? Just an elbow. Now, understand, an elbow's really cool. It really is. An elbow's neat. It connects the forearm to the, uh, the back arm. It, it's really cool. It's really... It's really, but here you go. The elbow's only, an elbow is pretty stupid by itself. Its only value is in context. Its only value is actually in community. And that's what we're getting at here. But here you go. Diversity is all of that, but it's even more than that. Diversity in, in the body is also that God's glory is revealed in that diversity. Do you understand that we see the glory of God as he manifests himself in the giftedness of how he's gifted everybody in the body? People look at a, at a healthy, functioning body of Christ and they go, wow, the, the, the sum is greater than the parts. That, it testifies to the world that God is alive and well when a body operates in community the way it's supposed to. 
And consider, the more diverse a body is, the more unique and the more nimble and the more helpful a body is. But the more homogenized the body is, in other words, the more we look like each other, the more we act like each other, the more we dress like each other, the more we talk like each other, the more we think the same way, the more we we do the exact same things as everybody else, then the more stodgy, the more boring, and the less effective the body is. When the Spirit works in the church, there's going to be diversity, so don't quench the, the Spirit. John Stott writes this, The church is a community of people who owe their existence, their solidarity, and their corporate distinctness to one thing, the call of God. Our distinctness comes from nothing else, ethnicity, culture, age, or predilection. That's another word for preference. So so that's the church, those who benefit from clear thinking about the body, and now clear thinking about exercising our gifts, verses six through eight. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Kent Hughes, again, calls the spiritual gifts the sweet perfumes of the body of Christ. The sweet perfumes of the body of Christ. And, and, And every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. When you become a Christian, God gifts you in in a special and unique and important way in something. Usually it's two or three different things. We call that a gift mix or a gift package. But certainly there's at least one thing that you do well that you can uh, contribute to uh, the body. No Christian is left out of this truth. None. And what's interesting is there's, uh, there's, uh, the gifts are universal and unique. They're universal in that everybody has the gifts and they're unique in that they're all different for each person. So there's a sense of it being universal and unique. And the, the word gift comes uh, from the Greek word charis, which literally means grace. It's, it's a grace that God has given us. It's an unmerited favor that he has given us. And so we have these gifts by the grace of God. And because they are gifts, we know that there's a giver of the gifts. And so when we use them, we use them out of diligence and discipline to him and, to, and, and out of gratitude to him. And the gifts have to be used if a body's going to be healthy. You're cheating the body if you don't use your gifts. Here, here's, a, here's a graphic you won't likely forget anytime soon. And I'm sure of that after the comments I got after first service. If a body is not using their gifts, that body is spiritually constipated. It's unhealthy. You're backed up. You're not moving. You're not getting anything done. Okay? All the gifts are needed for a complete, unique, God-glorifying community of faith. And he lists, Paul lists a, a few gifts here. He doesn't list them all. The list is not exhaustive. There's, there's more gifts lifted in, listed in 1 Corinthians 12. There's some in Ephesians 4. There's some in 1 Peter. You can look at all those. Um, and, and people want us to deal with these gifts individually. We don't have time to go deep on them, but l- let's hit a few of the highlights. Let's at least answer a couple of the questions, and maybe in your RCs you can go a little bit deeper. There's also a blog post that I'm going to point you to in a minute that will help you w- as well. Notice that both prophecy and teaching are listed. They're the first two that are listed. Those are gifts. What's the difference between prophecy and teaching? And and why do we have to have them both? Well, first of all, they're usually kind of related. 
They're, they're usually, if a person has the gift of teaching, he often has the gift of prophecy and, and vice versa. But they are different. They are vastly different and both are needed. Prophecy, I would say, is the humble, spirit-led, wise application of God's word to life. So it's a little bit more than this as you get deeper into it, but primarily what prophecy is is, is the ability to, to look at a life, look at what somebody's doing, look at the direction they're going in, understand what God's word says, and then apply that to that situation and say, if you continue down this road, here's what's gonna happen. Okay? Here's, here's how God is gonna deal with that. So prophecy would be the humble, spirit-led, wise application of God's word to life, while teaching is more declarative and informative about God's word, word studies and stuff like that. Okay? Prophecy is more revelation-based. Teaching is more knowledge-based. Prophecy speaks primarily to the heart and to the will and volition, whereas teaching speaks primarily to the mind, and as I said, both are desperately needed. But those with the gift of prophecy, Paul has a special uh, kind of exhortation for us. He says, you're to do it in proportion to your faith. Now, this is the only gift he says this about, and so we have to be very, very careful here. Literally how the Greek is used, it, it means that those with the gift of prophecy are not to go beyond the bounds of what God has revealed in his word. Just because we have the gift of prophecy, it doesn't give us permission to start making up extra biblical stuff. Uh, God, God didn't gift us with the gift of prophecy and then somehow declare that we are the ones that are gonna change God's mind about what he's already told us. Well, God has told me that it's okay to, to, to sleep around and, and commit adultery. I'm a prophet, okay? We have to be really careful. I have an illustration of this. This is a hard illustration. It's a little bit awkward. I went through it. Believe me, it was awkward and challenging. I was there. Uh, some of you might even think, there's gotta be exaggeration to this story. There is none. It was really hard. It was really challenging. It was really tough. Uh, 18 years ago, I was uh, an adjunct instructor at Grand Canyon University. And I was, uh, it was the first night of a class that I was teaching, and I was teaching in the adult continuing education department, which meant that you had to be at least 25 to be in the class. And, and essentially, it was a class of 11 or 12 people, with, and they were 25 to 40 years old. And so many of them had careers, and, and so it was an interesting group of people. And I don't re it, was either a, it was either a class on Christian leadership or, or the Christian disciplines. I can't remember. That's not necessarily important. But what I like to do on the first day of any class I teach is I like to do an icebreaker and kind of get everybody talking and get everybody involved, get us introduced to everybody. So we're going around the room, and eventually over here, um, we came to a woman. And, and so I said, okay, you're next. And she introduced herself. She said her name. And she said, you all need to know that I occupy in my church the office of prophetess. God has given me the gift of prophecy. And my church has affirmed and confirmed that gift. They have consecrated me and they have separated me and they have given me the office of prophetess. God speaks through me. So what that means for this class, and she looked around at everybody and she said, that means that when I speak, you all have to listen. And then she turned to me and she said, and professor, you need to understand that if there's something in the syllabus that I don't agree with or I don't agree with how you grade some work of mine, you have to listen to me. She was an absolute delight. <laughs> now obviously there were some follow-up conversations there <laughs> about various differences in doctrine and understanding. But do you see how a gift can be abused? And by the way, just because Paul says it about prophecy, it doesn't mean that that doesn't happen with other gifts. People with the gift of teaching can abuse that gift and have in the past. 
People with the gift of giving can abuse that gift as well. When God gives us these graces, he gives them to us with the understanding that we are going to be spirit-filled and we're going to use them with humility and wisdom. And we're going to use them for the benefit of others, not to build ourselves. That is a really important teaching there. So we need to understand that prophecy is an incredibly important gift, but like all the gifts, it has the opportunity to be abused, and so we have to be careful for that. Now, um, if you want to know more about the gift of prophecy, a lot of people like to talk about that and look into that. If you want to know a little bit more, we didn't go deep enough here for you, uh, and if you want to know a little bit more about the idea of spiritual giftedness and take a spiritual gifts inventory test, uh, Luke Simmons, who is the pastor of our uh, Gateway congregation, wrote a blog that just got posted on our website. It's on all the, all the various uh, congregational websites. It's on the Arcadia website. It's on the front page of our website. You can go to Luke's blog and click on it. He'll talk more about prophecy. You can go to that spiritual gifts inventory. It'll be very, very helpful to you. So moving on, Paul also says service is a gift. That word, Greek word, is diakonos, from which, from which we get the word deacon, So you hear that in church language. Somebody's a deacon, okay? But here's the thing about service, and this is kind of the trouble we get into sometimes with this gift. You don't have to have the office of deacon in order to serve other people. Just because you're not a deacon doesn't disqualify you from the ability to serve others. Well, I'm not a deacon, so I'm not gonna bother serving anybody else. Now, we get that kind of thinking in the church all the time. We hear people all the time say, I don't have the gift of giving, therefore I don't need to give money to the church. Yay me! (laughs) Here's one that really gets some of us. I don't have the gift of evangelism, and so I don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. I'll let all those evangelical people tell people about Jesus. If you know Jesus, you need to be telling people about Jesus. I need to be telling them about Jesus. You don't have to necessarily be separated as having the gift. If you have the gift, it just means that it's something that's constantly on your mind and you just can't get along without telling people about Jesus. That's the way that gift operates. And we need to acknowledge that while our service is rightfully first to the local body that we attend, we are also called to serve all of humanity. Bonhoeffer wrote this, The church is herself only when she exists exists for humanity. She must take part in the social life of the world, not lording it over men, but helping and serving them. Paul then moves on to this gift of exhortation. The the, the word literally means side-by-side encouragement. The picture you might get in your mind about this word is, is, is a parent helping a child learn how to ice skate. You're you're side by side with that child. Helping, instructing, encouraging, correcting, laughing, falling, getting back up and, and tapping them on the back and, and, and encouraging them. And then, of course, you're going to hand them a hockey stick because what's the point of learning how to ice skate if you're not going to play hockey? Amen? Come on, come on now. Love it when I can work hockey into the Bible. That's really good. Leadership. Leadership. The world and the church tend to see leadership differently, Right? This is my opinion, and you can push back on it, but this is what I've observed. Every time the church is infected with the world's view of leadership, the church suffers. And every time the world is the beneficiary of the church's view of leadership, it prospers. The the leadership gift that God gives is something that should be used in the church, but it should be used in the marketplace 
as well. And we use it for the benefit of others, not the glory of us. That's the way it's supposed to be used. And you're going to say, but wait a minute. Leadership, with leadership comes power and influence and authority and all those nasty things that gets people into trouble. Yes, that's true. With leadership, there should be power and influence and authority, but it's used for the glory of the other people and the glory of God, not for the glory of the leader. The greatest example of this, I think, is Joseph. The guy in the Bible in Genesis 37 through 50. You want to learn about a guy who had all of the giftings of leadership, more gifting of leadership than any person you could ever imagine. And then he was given more power, more influence, and more authority than anybody in the world. And he's a guy that used that leadership for the benefit and the glory of others and the benefit and the glory of God. He walked that line and managed that tension between having that kind of authority and power and using it for others. And then Paul reminds us with the words he uses, especially in verses seven and eight, that when we use our gifts, attitude counts. Attitude counts. Those who benefit from the gifts that we have should see that we are generous. That word generous literally means that our motives are pure. We're not using our gifts in order to manipulate anybody or to gain an advantage over anybody or to benefit us at the expense of them. They're pure in motive. But also we are to be We are to be zealous. We are to be eager. There's a sense of urgency and passion in using those gifts. And then we are to be joyfully grateful, cheerful when we use these gifts. The, the, The Greek word that we translate there, cheerful, is hilaros. We should use our gifts hilariously. And the reason we do that is because we know what God has done for us. We know the sacrifice that he's made for us through his son. We know the life that he's given us through our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we know the life that he's given us here and after because of that. And with, with, with a hilarious nature, we go and we use these gifts that he's given us. We, we are delighted to do it. Uh, Galatians 5.13 says this. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom. Yes, you were called to freedom in Christ. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to benefit yourself, but rather through love, serve one another. Serve one another. And so we use our gifts because because we use them out of love, because we've been loved so greatly and so tremendously by God. We also use our gifts because we're not special. We're not above serving others. That idea that, well, I'm here to be served, but I'm not going to serve any, that doesn't work in the body of Christ. You're, you're not special. You're not above others. But at the same time, I would also say you use your gifts because you are special, and here's why you're special. God has gifted you in a unique way that the body needs. So we use them because we're loved. So we use our gifts out of love. We use them because we're not special. We use them because we are special. And finally, we use our gifts because it's, it's who we are in Christ. This is part of our identity in Christ. The Spirit fills us. The resurrected Christ leads us. And we can trust the Father. God has been so good to us and so we are called to be good by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, in serving others.